Linux Out Loud is firing up our mics, connecting those headphones as we search the community for themes to expound upon. We keep the banter friendly, the conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. This week, we're spotting off about what makes a good beginner-friendly Linux distro. So let's get into episode 13. Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean and Bitwarden. With me today is the real reason you listen to the show, Wendy, and Matt, the reason you might not want to listen to this show. How are you two? Well, that's very flattering, but I think we all create a great show together. <laughs> I know. I had to poke at Matt for something. I just didn't have anything good. I would say I'm surprised by the poking at me, Nate, but I'm really not. You, you shouldn't, shouldn't be. be. Let's be real. The only reason they would not want to listen to the show is, well, you. But anyway. Quite possibly. Actually, I know, but I, I want to deflect off of me onto you, though. See how that works? Deflection. Deflection. <laughs> Wendy, you have some sort of a contact update. What is this contact update you speak of or write of or something of? Last week, I talked about the struggles of just trying to find contacts that work. I ended up wearing the one daily contacts, the Bosch and Lohman Fuse for over a week. They give you a 10-day trial and that's where I'm going with. I made the call today to my eye doctor and I'm like, yep, this is it. This is the ones. Let's go with these. So thanks for everybody's feedback on what they do and the contacts they use. This is the route I'm going, getting a year supply. So my eye doctor visit was in January. So I will be going back and seeing my eye doctor again for a checkup before I'm out of contacts this time, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. Because then if we want to make any changes, I've got plenty of contacts kind of have a wiggle room to figure out if I want to make changes or anything I want to do after wearing them for another however many months it's going to be. So yeah, that's the update. I've decided on a pair. If you were wondering, you probably weren't, but I'm going with the Bosch and Loam dailies and I won't be able to take them back to my regular eye doctor. They're not part of the recycle program, but there are some that are not too far away from me that I can just save up a collection of the ones that I've been using. And when I go to big town, take them with me so that they can be recycled and made into other things. I had no idea they recycled contacts. Well, that was one of my biggest worries when it came to the dailies is I'm like, that is a lot of stuff to be throwing away every single day, every single year. You have got the plan plastic of the contact, the plastic of the case. And that's one reason why I liked Bosch and Loam was they do have a recycle program for their daily contacts. Well, that is really excellent. I'm actually really glad they're doing that. I'd never heard of such a thing when I wore contacts, which was not that long ago. Although I did stretch the dailies maybe a little bit and I did stretch the bi-weeklies or whatever they were that I had weeklies because I thought I was doing greater good, but possibly doing me a detriment. Definitely a detriment to your eyes. That's probably one of the worst things you can do is stretch contacts for longer than they're supposed to be used for. And that's not even an option for me. I couldn't even make it the full stretch of a use with reusable contacts and have them be comfortable and even want to wear them anymore. So dailies it is for me. It's important to see because if you can't see, that's a detriment to everybody, especially if you're driving. Absolutely. <laughs> Matt, this week it sounds like you have an application for us or an application that you've been using why don't you tell us about it? I generically bounce around on my personal finance apps. I tend to do a lot of more, I guess you could say, checkbook kind of stuff as far as my personal finances, just because I prefer to have that 
knowledge of where all my money is going as opposed to always looking at online bank statements and all the other stuff that, you know, we've kind of come accustomed to, you know, more fiscal responsibility because it's a better indication of where I'm putting my money as opposed to just a really long statement of subtractions out of my bank account. <laughs> so for me, I've jumped around from things like K My Money, Good New Cash, Scrooge, just a bunch of different financial apps that are on the desktop specifically. And the one I actually landed on was Home Bank. It's really a desktop personal finance app. It's really basic and simple. It does exactly what I need it to. The nice thing that I like about it is once you create certain categories within the app, you get a nice pie chart of like where your money's going when you actually categorize it and stuff. So you can see that and like in a visual representation and be like, oh, too much uh, expendable cash went to this as opposed to something else that it should have gone to like bills or whatever. So for me, Home Bank has been a nice find. I've messed around with it kind of prior in the past, but this is like the first real stab at using it consistently. And, you know, for about the last probably two months has really been hammering down and using it. It's been helping me a lot as far as my expenditures and all the other stuff and keeping my personal finances in a better spot than when you're not paying attention and you, you know, swipe a card and just be like, eh, whatever, and kind of move on. Definitely a nice little app to have. It is open source, so... Looks a little weird, you know, typical GTK app on a QT environment. So it can look a little weird, but still going to say QT does a better job at making non-native apps look better than GTK. This is true. So you said you jumped around quite a bit. When did you jump to HomeBank? When was this last hop? HomeBank was about two months ago. Okay. I was using Scrooge for a while. My Money and GNU Cash, they're personal finance apps, but they're also much more than I need as far as personal finance management stuff. It's really just like, where's my bank account sitting at is all I really need. I don't need invoices. I don't need a lot of the business type stuff that's built into My Money and Scrooge and GNU Cash. It's just not something I personally need. So this is much more up my alley as far as what I really need. Scrooge is more streamlined than GNU Cash and KMI Money, but Home Bank is really what I needed. And it just took me a little while to actually kind of find that. Now, Home Bank is specifically targeted toward for the home use only. Is it a unique proposition? Kind of. It does more, but it's not as overkill as the other ones. For me, it's very single focused and almost that Unix design in an app that a lot of the other apps just do too much that I really don't need. So oh, Okay. The main reason you went with Home Bank is because it is just a simpler user interface, simpler feature set. Yes, totally. Well, that's cool. I've been looking at personal finance apps. I'm not the only one though, but Nate, you're kind of going in a different direction, it sounds like. Apparently, I'm a step behind you since I jumped into using Scrooge. I did a lot of reading of different applications for doing home finance. And I had been using GNU Cash years ago. I started using that probably back in 2004-ish timeframe. It was very simple. You could do like the whole like split ledgering thing was very nice. Maybe I'm using the term wrong, but it was nice to have because you could divide out different expenditures and whatnot. I stopped using it because I didn't need it anymore, really. I downsized out of my rentals and my finances became very, very simple. Then I bought a new place and I got farm animals, putting together an orchard, and then I'm starting to do some other things here where there's other streams of income. And then I realized this year that, oh golly, things are a lot more complicated. And the spreadsheet method of how I had been doing it, it's very simple accounting of my finances, is not cutting it anymore. So I need to make a decision here and make a decision fast. And I procrastinated. But when I did finally make the decision, I ended up going with Scrooge. I've been building out the different categories and whatnot in that I can track different projects that I'm doing, kind of put my different money centers and whatnot in different locations because I want to see if I'm actually doing okay 
where my money is going. I want to find out where things are headed out, how they're heading out and how much is heading in or how much is coming in and from different sources and whatnot. So things just got kind of complicated on me and I had to do something just to kind of feel like I had a good grasp of it. My immediate reaction is just to not spend money at all if I don't know where my money's going. So I'm, I'm really good at just like shutting everything down. But when you have kids and then you have chickens and you have you know things like that, you have to put money out because you know otherwise things die. And apparently you get in big trouble if you don't feed your kids. So I thought it was a good idea to just go ahead and hop into using a financial management application. Just keep kind of better control of my finances. I don't see hopping financial management software as being a really trivial thing. I mean, apparently you did it, Matt, but for me anyway, like once I get kind of entrenched in something, I don't really like to move out of it. I have been tracking expenses like in different spreadsheets, but I want to basically pull it all together here and, and really see, have a better, clearer picture and also better set myself up in the future as I start doing some of these other ventures. This is in hopes of actually streamlining a certain aspect of my life, the financial aspect, being a better steward of my finances and living a life better than I deserve. So what attracted you to Scrooge? I know that Matt said he tried it. Apparently it's got a bunch of extras. But what in your search was like, yeah, this is the application that I really want to go with? Was it because you could divide things out to different income streams or what was that? Yes, there's that. And also it has an undo feature. So if you make a mistake, like in KMyMoney, there's not really an undo button. You have to like redo it. Basically, it's kind of irritating. GNU Cash is similar. There wasn't an undo. So if you made a mistake, you just had to go through and just redo whatever it is you did. And I'm prone to mistakes. I mean, you guys have known me for a while now. I make lots of mistakes. And so it's nice to have that undo button. I wish it would work in real life too. Like if I make a bad cut on something, an undo button, that'd be great. Anyway, that was part of it. The other thing too was it wasn't so simple, the feature set, that I couldn't grow into it with these other areas. Because I need to track other income streams, I want to make sure that I'm able to do everything in this one application. I don't want to have to have these separate spreadsheets as I have been doing. Although sometimes it's fun to do that. Spreadsheets, I guess, are kind of fun. I wanted to make it as simple as possible, a one-stop area for all my financial information. I'm going to be curious how this works for you two over the course of the next month and year. Definitely give us an update later. Oh, absolutely. I certainly will be. It's a matter of me having a little more discipline in what I do in the evening after I'm done going through my receipts and everything. I think I told you before how I use an electronic filing cabinet. I know I've told you that before. And so this is kind of a way of having more resolution on the different things I purchase and so forth. So I can really see, is the farm costing me money or is it actually making me money when I factor everything in? And is it really worth it? I mean, it's a bit of a hobby too, so it's kind of fun. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm managing it to the best of my ability. This episode of Linux Out Loud is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex. But standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your team can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product docs, and services that developers love. DigitalOcean helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one to a team of 1,000 people. DigitalOcean helps your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. As a listener of Linux Out Loud and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit 
when you sign up at do.co slash tux2022. That's do.co slash tux2022. So again, you can get started with your $100 credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Linux is something we enjoy very much, and we've been entrenched in the whole Linux world for quite some time. But sometimes there are people that come to Linux that are new, or actually maybe hopefully more often than just sometimes, they come to Linux, they're new, and like, what is a good beginner's Linux distro for somebody who is not maybe as technically proficient as the rest of us. And so the question comes up from time to time, what is a good beginner's Linux distro? Where should you push somebody first? And to give them that good first experience, have some fun, a place to kind of spring off in other areas, or maybe a place to stay. So what do you think, Matt, is the Linux distro that would be great for beginners? I know you are very opinionated when it comes to Linux distros. Just because it's good for me doesn't mean it's good for you and vice versa, except OpenSUSE, of course. But what is it that you think makes a great or a good start for a Linux distribution for somebody who's uninitiated but very curious about how Linux would work for them? So for me, what I actually do is I take the user into account. It's a novel idea. That's weird. I know, right? (laughs) You don't project? No, I don't project. It's not my machine. It's not my machine. But it could be. (laughs) At the end of the day. They get mad enough and they just hand you the machine at the very end of it. You used to get them the wrong distro. They're so angry with their computer, you end up with a new computer. See, that works great. (laughs) And Nate, is that why you have so many old computers? I choose not to answer that question. (laughs) Nate projects himself as so nice, willing to help everybody out. We know now he spilled the beans. That's how he gets his tech. (laughs) So, no, to answer your question seriously, though, Nate, for me... It's about choosing the right distro for the person that you're looking for to put on Linux. Some people want to learn. So if they want to learn, if you want to go the Slackware route, if you want to go the Arch route, if you want to go Linux from scratch, if you want to go more at that end of the spectrum and you really seriously want to learn it, those are the best distros to throw somebody to. If they're just everyday average consumer, mom, pop, Joe, Jane kind of deal, As much as we argue about GUI and CLI and all the other stuff, most of them just want their stuff to work. Most of those type of people view computers, doesn't matter if it's cell phone, doesn't matter if it's a desktop, laptop, or anything in between, they view it as a tool. A piece of technology is to get a job done. It's not my place to project what I think you should be using as far as like my personal preference, because I view technology in the way of it's a tool to get stuff done. I tend to approach most of the way I view distros in that regard. So if you're coming from, say, Mac OS, I'm probably going to recommend something like elementary, barring whatever is going on with elementary currently, because of the certain design aesthetics and that kind of stuff that elementary tends to adhere to. I don't want to use the term cohesive, but a certain design philosophy that is very apparent within the distro itself which is something that most Mac users would understand and feel because of things like Mac OS being very, oh, it has to be in Coca and all the, you know, very specific design language within the UI. So that's something that I would be more willing to throw to a Mac user looking to jump over. If you're looking at Windows, I will probably recommend a distro that is using Plasma because from an interface point of view, 
is going to be more familiar. Not exact, but familiar enough where you can navigate around. If you hit the meta key or the super key or the Windows key, whatever you want to call it, it brings up the menu generically, unless the distro decides to do Alt F1 as the default for some reason. Yeah, that's always weird. It is. You know, typical Plasma have some weird settings. So for me, it really depends on the user as far as like what you're going to recommend for uh, what makes a good beginner Linux distro. It all depends on the user. I'm more of a GUI versus CLL person. We've had those discussions frequently. <laughs> I know. And you are wrong about those, but I mean, uh, you're probably right about those. I completely agree. It is definitely <laughs> based on the user. And we've talked about this multiple times before. I handed my dad a laptop with elementary on it because I figured for the most part, he was going to be taking care of the updates and that himself. Now, for my in-laws, I know that I am walking them through every time something's going wrong. I'm doing all the maintenance updates for them. So it's easier to have them running pretty much the exact same thing I am. So when they call, because I am definitely one of those people that I have to do it in order to explain it. So when they call me and they're like, how do I fix this? I can go to my system. I can do it at the same time. I'm telling them how to do it and being able to see exactly what they see, which of course helps me talk them through whatever needs to be done at the time. So those do make a difference. Now I've got some friends that we've talked about putting Linux on one of their systems, and I would want it to be one that I could set up for them. We could do a general walkthrough, and then for the most part, they could take care of the day-to-day -day stuff, do the installs, and most of that would be GUI level. I really don't have a lot of friends other than all of you people out there in Linux land that actually want to do something from the CLA. They want to do it in a GUI. They haven't run DOS in forever. They don't want to go back to DOS. Not saying that the terminal is like that, but it is in the sense of, you know, typing in your commands, you're doing it all text-based instead of graphically. They don't want to go back to that. And choosing a distro for them that's easy to work with. This is where I can have some issues with Plasma, and I'm a very big Plasma fan. I've tried several other DEs. This one works best for me. But I do have to say that Discover isn't always the best. It isn't always easiest to find things in there. One of my frustrations with it, and some of that is my internet, is it can take a long time for stuff to load on there. I can have an application up, but it's doing something in the background and I can't just click install. It takes a minute or two for it to finish doing whatever it's in the background for that button to pop up. I can click install and be on my way. So there are positives and negatives, and it does make a difference who's using the system, how much of the maintenance are they doing themselves, and what is their comfort level with trying that something new. Yeah, I think that's a really good point as far as what is the proximity that you have to the person using it and how much you expect to do some of the work. I've uh, given everything from OpenSUSE Leap to Kubuntu to a lot of people depending on who it is. But quite honestly, for the most part, those that ask me for help with their computers, I likely don't even recommend Linux sometimes because they're using specific Windows applications that makes using Linux not convenient at all. Now, there's some that probably could, but I tend to wait until they have something catastrophically awful happen to their computer where they're so frustrated with it and basically I save it with Linux. So then it's only uphill from there. And depending on the user, again, I'll likely go with OpenSUSE Leap or a Kubuntu, depending. Because a lot of times the Plasma experience is complete enough where Discover works fine on those in particular that I've used. 
and I don't have to worry about things just randomly breaking, which is why actually I run Leap on some systems in my house, one in particular in my house, because I want to see how it does with updates and everything else and using Discover and so forth. And then I'll just enable a flat pack so that they can search for applications, have a pretty wide, I should say, I enable flat hub because flat pack is already enabled. They have a large availability of applications to search through. But yeah, it largely depends on what it is that they're doing with their computer, whether or not I'll even advise Linux or what version of Linux I'll advise. If they're a distance away, I tend to go with something that I know is a little bit more nicely canned and doesn't require, I don't like saying this because it makes Matt right, terminal intervention because a lot of people just, they get vapor lock when they have to type text to the computer. It makes it almost not good. However, for those that I've done remote administration with, I like the fact that I have the same distribution running because it's very easy to invoke those terminal commands remotely and fix whatever's going on with the computer. Now, when you're handing someone OpenSUSE or OpenSUSE Leap, are you doing all of the pre-work to make sure that media is going to play right and all of that? It's not just a base install. You're doing some of the extras to give them the best user experience? Yes. I have a lot of stuff on my website, cubiclenate.com, which is actually why I originally set up in the first place so that I could do this very quickly and efficiently. Now just copy and paste those commands that I've already did, you know, had set up and set up the way I believe most people would like to use their computer. And then I don't have to worry about media networking and so forth. Typically speaking, people tend to like to use Chrome. So sometimes they'll even set up Chrome. I'll ask, are you using Chrome or Firefox? And they'll say, fire what? Says, okay, well, I'll set up Chrome for you just in case, but Firefox is preferred and this is why. There's actually one lady I set up OpenSUSE Leap for. I didn't tell her how to do it, but she set up Brave and everything else on her own with the computer, and she's 80-some-odd years old, loves KDE Connect, thinks it's just absolutely the cat's pajamas. And so she's very technically savvy and does very well with OpenSUSE Leap. Now, I take care of the upgrades for her, the annual upgrades, you know, to the next version. But outside of that, I don't have to really do anything for her anymore. She's pretty much, once she got used to some of the different design, like the UI design, she was totally good with it. So I know that if an 80-something-year-old lady can handle plasma and enjoy it, it can't be too bad for new users. Yeah, not every single person that's from an older generation can't handle tech. My great-grandpa was using a computer. Like, he had all kinds of awesome stuff going. He was definitely technology-centric. He's no longer with us anymore, but I know that there are people in older generations that are still in that realm. They would be just fine with a lot of these different Linux distributions that might need some other tweaking or changing and the like. So that's why it has to be individual, not a, oh, you're older, so it has to be XYZ. No, not so much. I am a pretty big fan of Fedora. It was one of the places where I started. It's actually what I'm using right now, what I've been using for a little bit. Don't worry, I still have a Manjaro drive in this system. Currently, that's the only way we're able to use VR, and I still very much like Manjaro. The nice thing about Fedora is that sometimes if you're not as good on the updates or whatnot, when you pull them down again, you're less likely to have conflicts and some of that issues. I know on my Manjaro system right now, it will not update because there's a package that conflicts with one of the open source VR drivers that I need in order to make that work. So the more complicated, the more things you can add on to it, the more likely you're going to have problems, which is why unless it was somebody that had a really good understanding of Linux, had the ability to reload it themselves, I'm typically not handing that over to them. 
But I know if I set up Fedora, I put the media codecs on there, have that all ready to go, which is now what my in-laws are using, Fedora 35, it's not going to be a problem. Next time I go, I can do a quick update and they're off and running again. Pretty gosh dang simple. I do like elementary because of the way that it's designed, because the way it's laid out for your person that just wants to get a job done. They don't care about the technical aspects. They really don't even care that it's Linux. They just want to get on their computer. They want to do the things they want to do. They want to install the programs they need and be done. Elementary has a really nice niche for that. And it's one of those that I'm so glad that that project's around because I can offer it to someone. I can say, this is the perfect fit for you. I don't think there is a one-size-fits-all beginner distro or new user distro because we're all different. Our computer needs are different and our technical skills are different. Yeah, so for me, I'm on the same camp as obviously you guys. There is no one-size-fits-all beginner distro. There's perhaps starting points, you know, you can make the recommendations of like anything based on Ubuntu, anything based on Debian, anything based if Nate, I'll plug OpenSUSE for you, anything based on OpenSUSE. You have those bases that you can give people. If people are talking about the best out of the box experience, I'm going to go so far as to say that for all the complaining about niche distros, specific built distros, they really do have their spot, especially if they're based on things like Ubuntu or Fedora or or Debian or Arch or whatever, because it literally is, for the most part, not all systems and all distros are the same, obviously, but it really is, uh, here's an out-of-the-box experience, here's your content creator, Salient OS, if you want Arch or or Garuda, or I'm going to which are the one that Glorious Egg Roll puts out, which is based on Fedora, which is also for gamers and content creators. It's very specific built, but it's an out-of-the-box experience of like, here's all the stuff that you would possibly need just to click install and go. For as much flack as those distros tend to get, that out-of-the-box just click install and you have an entire OS with all the applications that you potentially might need, there's a thing to be said for that kind of experience, especially for a quote-unquote new user or beginner distro, because then they really don't have to go hunt for anything. It's just there. So if it has something like, I know Manjaro as an example, has Steam preloaded with it, stuff like that goes a long way to make a better introduction for some particular use cases. So that's why when we talk about not making wholehearted distro recommendations based off what we personally prefer and tying it more to the user, that's where those kind of niche distros might come in. Recommended distribution for content creators in that whole world, that is something very different than just average Joe user. Average Joe user is probably not going to do a whole lot of video editing and they're probably not going to do a whole lot of content creation outside, maybe doctoring up some pictures to put on Instabook or something like that. That's a totally separate area of recommendations. And yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And again, I hate saying this about you, Matt, but you're absolutely right there too. You got to recommend something that is specifically tailored for someone that expects this kind of end user experience, which is another reason why I think you know Linux truly puts personal back in a personal computer because you can shape your computer for your desired outcome of what you want to do with it. We could run down the entire list of distros, and actually I don't think we could name it all, and have the pros and cons because every single distribution, it doesn't matter, all has their advantages and their disadvantages. Which of the advantages is best for this particular user and which of the disadvantages of a distro 
least affects them. And that's kind of where it comes to in recommending a dish throw, which is why I don't like the blanket statements when it comes to this is what you should use. This is what everybody should use. Because like you said, Nate and Matt, that really does put the personal back in personal computers. It's one of the reasons why I love all the options. It's one of the reasons when people start saying, we need to condense Linux so it's an easier package to sell and put out for the mass market. And I'm like, no, 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 you're getting rid of, if you do that, some of the stuff that I absolutely love about Linux and the distributions that are out there. I don't want a one-size-fits-all. I don't want a perfect package for quote-unquote everybody. Let's keep it separate so that everyone could have exactly what they need or the best that is out there for a Linux distribution. Well, Wendy, you actually bring up a good point. You talk about the let's condense Linux so we can sell it to consumer mentality that we often hear. Really, though, that's kind of what companies like Valve have done. Here's a shipping experience. Do whatever you want with the hardware. We don't care. System 76. Yeah, they're doing that, but they're doing it for a specific user. Yeah, yeah. but like System 76 also does that. They package a product with Linux specifically with a default experience as a consumer product, but they don't care what you do with it. I think people, when we hear that we need to condense Linux down, it's like, no, we just need to have a shipping consumer product as like, this is the default experience. Do what you want with it. We don't care. Like that is the strength that we're talking about. Like it's the, if I buy a system 76 system, I'm going to expect Pop OS, maybe Ubuntu because that's not an option they do give, but you're also able to install arch on it you're able to install whatever you want on it and they're still going to support you from a hardware level so because they're selling that experience again they have a default shipping experience that's where i think people seem to not make the connection they're like oh we need to condense it down in one single distro and all this other stuff and it's like no that's not what we need to do we just need to define the shipping experience to a consumer Because they're looking at it from a consumer experience. Right. And that is where Valve has a dedicated first-time experience that is geared towards the gamer. System76 knows that people buying their laptops want a Linux computer. They know they're buying a Linux computer. Typically, they're spending a little bit more for the same hardware because they're having a smaller company build these systems knowing that Linux is going on it. So I think that in some way it's a little bit different because these companies are putting out Linux experiences that are specific towards a market, which is where I don't want Linux in general to go. And I'm not saying that Linux can't do that. We already have that and I think that's fantastic. But I wouldn't want Linux to whittle down to, okay, this is what we're putting out to the public everywhere. This is our one desktop environment. This is our one distro as we try to market like Windows or Mac. Our advantage is, our strong point is we have the variety and we can have different out-of-the-box user experiences for different products from different companies. Exactly. Like that is the strength because it's like you can have a Linux system, but the default shipping experience that a consumer, like on the consumer end, is very similar. Like, so you have the Pop Shop on Pop OS. If somebody decides to ship, like in Valve's, I'm just using these as examples, obviously. There's a desktop mode on the Steam Deck. 
the default installation method for the GUI for apps from FlatHub is through Discover. So they have a default shipping experience for that product. So the fact that we can tailor why any company wouldn't like this is beyond me. That company can have an identity and a brand and a design solely based on how they decide to tie the software to the hardware. And that is the default shipping experience. Whereas what we constantly hear is we basically want from like the Windows and and the Mac OS end is we want the one size fits all approach. As Linux users, it's like, no, we like the strength that that individuality gives companies and people. Because like Nate also said earlier, you know, it puts the personal back in personal computing. Exactly. The company can make it however they want. So the default shipping experience is cool. Awesome. I'm fine with that. Like, Nate, you're getting a Steam Deck. You plan on nuking and paving Arch from a, to oblivion. I already know that. Not right away. <laughs> Just long enough to say, you know, why I don't like Arch again. I will say, Nate, in fairness, <laughs> you will find it interesting when it's a read-only file system. Arch is a little weird, a little different. Who knows? I might even leave it for a little while and just maybe I'll forget that it doesn't have OpenSUSE on it because it has Plasma and it's a Plasma will be a good experience. I really want Tumbleweed. I want something I can trust. That itch is already so strong that he can't help but scratch <laughs> it. It won't last long. The, it won't. The OG user experience, Arch on that thing, regardless of its read-only anyway, will not last long. I give it 24 hours before OpenSUSE is on the Steam Deck. That's pretty generous. You're giving him more credit than I would. I mean, I'd give him about 20... <laughs> I would get him through the initial SteamOS boot up and inst- that experience, and then it gets nuked and paved. <laughs> That's it, huh? Yeah. yeah. And he's only going to do that just so you can go to the desktop mode, and that's it. The thing that actually might hold me back from doing that is whether or not the Steam I install from the OpenSUSE repositories would be the same Steam experience I would get on the Steam Deck. That might be a, a holdup for me. If it's a new UI, like as you were explaining, Matt, then maybe it would not to my benefit to change it because it's a different user experience. In fairness, Nate, there are flags within Steam that you can change to actually get the Steam Deck UI on non-Steam Deck things. Really? Already? And here's the best part. If you don't like the OpenSUSE experience after you've installed it, you can always go back. That is probably the best part. Or I know, I say the best part a lot. It's one of the awesome parts of using Linux is you can always go back to a different distro. You can try something and be like, hey, I really don't like this and go back to the stock experience on it. If I did go back to the stock experience, I would never tell anybody because I would want people to know. I'd be embarrassed. He would be embarrassed because that means he has a Linux system, no less, that is running Arch. That would be a lot of it. And we all know how much Nate loves Arch. I mean, he gives it mouth service every week. Well, between me and you, you know. (laughs) I Yeah, no. (laughs) Got him. What makes the best beginner Linux distro is relative, again, to the user. And I think we sometimes often like, oh, what makes it best? And it's like, eh, depends on your use case and user. Blind recommendations of like blanket statements doesn't do Linux any favor. That's why I personally tend to avoid them. And it sounds like that's kind of why you guys tend to kind of avoid it. This is true. It is why I avoid it because as much as I do like what I like in Linux, it's got to be the best user experience for the individual that's tailored to their particular needs. I'm absolutely befuddled that people love GNOME. It's not a slam against GNOME, but I just don't get it. And I also realize that it's, well, because it works better for them and you know, shut up about your love for plasma. It's just, it's not for them. So just go away, be quiet. I have to realize that and recognize that because people are different. People 
want their computers to do different things and to shove everybody down one path does people disservice. And if you don't enjoy something, it's really not worth using. Which I think is one of the advantages that we can use when helping someone if they're wanting to switch to Linux. It can be, this isn't the only option. If there's something that's not working for you, let's talk about it because there's probably something else there that can solve that solution. So I'm handing you this Linux laptop. We're putting Linux on your desktop, whatever it is, but it's not the end-all be-all Let's continue to have a conversation about your user experience and we can make tweaks and changes to get it as best as we can, as good as it gets. So now's your chance. Tell us what you think. What do you think is a good beginner's Linux distribution and how do you evaluate it? How do you recommend Linux to a friend or coworker or the stranger on the train? What makes a good beginner's Linux distribution from your perspective? If you're watching this on YouTube, you can comment there. You can go to the Destination Linux forum and comment there as well. So please let us know what makes a great beginner's Linux distro. Tux Digital Forums, by the way. Did that what I say? You said Destination Linux. This episode of Linux Out Loud is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the password manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords, and adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account that starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, and Duo, Belt Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com TUX to get started for free. If you're like me though, you want to show your appreciation for this awesome open source project by signing up for that premium edition, especially since it starts at just $10 a year. Thanks to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Linux Out Loud. Wendy, I'm not sure if you consider yourself a 3D printer newbie or not, but did you get a good beginner's 3D printer distribution? I am having one heck of a time when it comes to this 3D printer. I ordered it on Monday last week. We talked on Tuesday. It got here on Thursday, Thursday evening. I got it mostly put together. Actually, it was completely put together, but it was pretty late by the time I had that all done. So I didn't get to do too much of the setting stuff on it. Friday, we were gone pretty much all day. I got home Friday and we did our very, very first test print. And that came out amazing. I was so excited with the quality. Everything looked good. It was pretty smooth. And I'm like, heck yeah. We nailed it. We're good to go. Uh, yeah, I should have just kept my mouth shut because, oh my gosh, it did definitely not stay that way. So it was originally on my desk and it couldn't stay there because I need my desk to go up and down and you can't have your desk go up and down while you have an active print going. On Saturday, I was talking with my husband, Magneto, on where this was going to go. And we did kind of the bedroom shuffle to get some things moved around. So now <laughs> that little side desk that I built 
that is where the 3D printer is. My tower is now sitting on my desk at the moment and my laser printer is in its same exact same spot. So after that, I was like, okay, well, that first print worked, right? Let's do something a little bit bigger. One of the things my husband had picked out was a wrench organizer. So he's got all kinds of tools, not only on his service pickup, but also in the garage. And he was wanting to be able to find some of those easier instead of them just having a pile of wrenches inside one drawer. And as that was printing, we were actually getting some separation from the bed. So side note, my Ender 5 Plus came with the glass bed. It's not an addition I need to add to it. It came with that glass bed. As it was printing, I was noticing on the side that was closest to us, the side that was closest outside, on both of those corners, we were getting some lifting. And I'm like, oh, you know, it was probably because the fan was on in the room while that was printing. So we had some stuff that was cooling too fast. But overall, the print came out okay. And then I started having issues with like stuff not wanting to print accurately at all. And I'm like, what the heck is going on here? I had made sure that it was leveled and it was just, you know, fighting with it, trying to... My son wanted to print a 3D snake, one that you don't attach after it's printed. You have to print it all in its individual pieces and they're connected as they print. And it would start to go and it was way too high. The nozzle was way too high. At one point, it was started printing fine, but then we were having separation from the glass plate. I have cleaned the glass plate with isopropyl alcohol. I've cleaned it with acetone. Heck, I even just ran the gosh dang thing through the dishwasher this morning. I did more leveling on that today because I figured that's definitely part of the issue. There's something maybe in when it got moved from the desk to its new home that something got bumped. I don't know, but there's something that's off there and I need to re-level. I need to understand better what is the best way to level it. So I did the paper method first and then I went through and had it print different squares in each of the corners in the middle. I made a few tweaks during that. Some of my squares look really, really good. This just finished up before we got done recording. Some look excellent and some need a little bit more work. The problem is the center one is one of those where it definitely needs work. So it's going to throw off my two that are really, really good. So it's going to take a few more adjustments in order to have my print proper. It's not that it's too high on the center now, but it's definitely too low. So it's got those grooves instead of being nice and smooth. The other issue I'm having is when this goes to print, it'll start in the, if you're looking at the printer, at the top left corner and make a triangle in order to start the extrusion of the plastic to kind of clean out that printing tip. My biggest problem with that is it ends in the center of my printer. So if there's anything wrong with that bead that's running through that extruder, it's right in the middle of the gosh dang print. And I don't know <laughs> where to turn that off. I don't see that as a setting inside the Ender 5 Plus settings. 
I'm not seeing that in the slicing software that I'm using. Maybe it's in there. Maybe that's something I can fix. I just don't know where. I'm working on the leveling side of it, but that's one thing that has to stop and I just don't know where to go to fix it. Well, I can tell you that when you're experiencing like separation from the bed early on, those are a couple things. One, every time you touch your printer, like if you move it at all, you basically need to re-level it. It doesn't take much of a slight torque at all to throw the whole thing off. So you have to re-level it. That's one thing. Secondly, cleaning the plate was probably a good move as well. The paper trick is what I use all the time. And basically, I recheck my level every couple of prints just because when the thing gets warm, heats and contracts and so forth, you're just going to have some things just going to creep on it over time. You also might want to check to see if there's any wobble in your bed as well. I don't know if the Ender 5 is the same style as far as the bed goes. I don't know if it just goes up and down or what. I think it just goes up and down. So this might be non- a nonsense. Yeah, mine just goes up and down. It only moves in the Z axis and my print head moves in the X and Y. Yeah, that's nice. But see if there's any wobble anywhere. You might want to check and see if anything needs to be tightened up. As far as the initial purging of the print head before it goes into the print, that's weird that it runs out through the center. Mine does a strip along the side, comes back and then goes. There might be a section or something in the 3D printing software, the slicer. I believe it's done through the G code. So there might be something in the slicing software. I use Prusa Slicer. That seems to work really well for me. I find it has a better feature set than Cura, but I didn't notice my printer doing it with Cura either. What other features are in the Prusa software that the Cura doesn't have? Cura is what I've been using. It seemed to have been the most recommended one, but I'm happy to switch gears. Like I'm only getting started in this. I'm not dedicated to any slicer at this point. What feature sets does the Prusa have over the Cura? It's not that it has like so many features that are over it. It seems that the defaults are better in the Prusa slicer. It runs the bed a little bit hotter than what Cura does. And I find that that does have a positive benefit to my prints. And then I find that the way it ramps it up is um, what's interesting. I don't know why it does it the way it does, but it, it ramps up the end, the hot end to about halfway. Then it starts the bed up and then it doesn't kick the to full heat until the very end. So you don't actually have like a mismatch or the end being too hot for too long before it starts to push the, the plastic out. Some of the functions it has, like for supports and such, I like the additional options you have there in Prusa Slicer over Cura. Now, I will say I like the actual aesthetic of the Cura Slicer better, but the Prusa Slicer gives you a lot more of the nerdy information about like where it's spending plastic resources and so forth. It also gives you cost estimates, how much did that print actually cost you, plastic, and so forth. A lot of little things like that I think are pretty cool. The way you can uh, set up different presets, I think, is better in Prusa also because so you can set up the material defaults. You can set up like if you want to have like a specific profile for how you want materials done, you can set it up very easily. And then they separate out if you have like different resolutions or details or strengths and whatnot. So if you're doing like a draft print, you might want to do thicker layers. You may want to have less infill. So you can set that up separately to how your material is. In Cura, I'm quite sure I had to set up one for like the what I use for ABS. It was kind of inter- a little more intermixed, like one profile, like material and detail. But I could be wrong on that, another thing about it. But that's at least the way I had to set it up last time I used it. It's just little things like that and, and how they manage like the different profiles. I just happen to like that better. But they don't have a dark interface though. Like Cura actually has like a darker interface as far as like the background and everything is less bright colors. I do prefer that over the Prusa slicer. I definitely prefer the dark theme too, but I like the idea of being able to tweak stuff just a little bit more. I'm still in the process of trying to understand what all of those different tweaks mean. One of the really good tips that I've picked up so far 
especially where I was having some adhesion issues, was to slow down the printhead so it's not going quite so fast and gives that plastic a little longer time to stick as it's running across. And I definitely think that made a difference when I was doing my test samples. I'll make sure I'm rubbing it down every time before I do a print, at least with isopropyl alcohol. But dust is a major issue here. There's no way there's going to not be dust on the print surface. It's always going to be a thing. I have saw some tips and tricks about using some stick glue or some hairspray to help adhere that to the plate. Yay or nay on that? I've never done hairspray. I've done like the glue stick. The new plate that I got that has like kind of a textured surface almost that has like these micro pores, I guess. I've not used any glue on that whatsoever, but it's a different kind of surface. So I'm not sure what the surface is like that you're dealing with, but I have had a lot of good success historically with the glue stick. The issues I have had with the glue stick though is then getting the print off of the printer without breaking it. It's kind of a mixed bag. Somebody else also recommended using like painter's tape on that and then you can just peel the painter's tape right off. That didn't work for me at all as far as like getting the tape off because the tape then stuck to the glass and I had to use a razor blade to tape off the glass because <laughs> I didn't fully get the glue off of it as well. It's like there's some glue left over then I put the tape on top of the glue that I had on there. It was just a mess and I don't really recommend that. As much. We are using the exact same surface, I think, because okay. we both have the ender. You bought the glass ender plate for yours, and mine came with the glass ender plate, and it does have this nice texture to it. So I wonder if part of my issues with it not adhering is mostly because I was having issues with leveling. I do have the automatic level on there. It does take a reading every single time. But that only works as well as you have your manual leveling figured out. So unless my z-axis is correct, it's going to throw it off everywhere else. So making sure that that's right. Maybe I won't need to do any additional things, just making sure it's good and clean once I have that z-axis dialed in. That's probably what it is. Get it dialed in, keep tweaking it until you get it right. Try not to get too frustrated. That'd be my recommendation. But once you have it dialed in, then it's going to be great. And you're just going to start printing things off just continually until you have some head clogs. And like, what is going on here? Why is my print not printing well? We can talk about that on another episode of how to correct those issues, what causes those problems. Probably a few dozen prints down the road. A few prints maybe, down the line. Yeah, maybe several dozen prints down the road. Yeah, we're definitely not done talking about this. Work out the bed leveling and then we'll work out your inevitable head clogs that you're going to have. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. So we'll jump on over to Matt and he will throw us the game of the week. What do you got? This particular week, I actually have a Linux native game. One of those games that is actually more of those isometric CRPGs, I mean, computer RPGs of old, based on around the Infinity Engine kind of games. And it's done by Obsidian Entertainment. And it's actually a sequel to Pillars of Eternity. Pillars of Eternity 2, Deadfire. This is a very very big game. <laughs> if you want an in-depth sea adventure D&D style game to play, this is probably one of those games that you might want to go and get. Really expansive, really in-depth as far as what you can do, a lot of character interactions, and just if you want to live the pirate life, basically, this is probably the best way to describe it is get this game and the landfill of magic and it's a very dark world to live in for these type of games. So ah, okay. you go around chasing uh, a god who destroyed your settlement in the first game, essentially. And you are on calling it revenge is one thing, but you're chasing after him. And that's the entirety of the concept of this particular game as a sequel. 
it's definitely a fun game. I enjoy it. It's one of those games that you can probably drop a good 40 hours into easily. And that's just the story. That's if you don't go exploring and all the other fun stuff that you can do off on the side. Because really what these games are about is getting lost in the fun side quests that happen. Some people will talk about Skyrim and Oblivion and those styles of games. I find these type of games far more fun than those vast empty open world games because these are condensed, but that sense of exploration is still kind of there. I like the visual presentation of it. It does look a little bit like it's maybe for a mature audience. Oh, wait, there's the rating. (laughs) It's rated M. (laughs) That's why I said it was dark. Yeah, it's a neat concept. I liked games kind of like this years ago, although they weren't isometric so much as they were like top down you know kind of like zelda those style of games you know ultima i never played ultima the ultima series but i like that style of game it's an rpg i guess you build up resources you know you're as you go through different levels or or missions you have more capabilities and, and so forth and i like that kind of a game styling they have the potential of being a game that you can pick up play for a while put down maybe not play it pick it up continue where you left off and it's all good. It's a little bit more chill, I guess, of a, of a gaming experience. It's not too overly intense. Although obviously this one probably is a little more intense than you know Zelda. But nonetheless, it looks like a, a great game just to play. Something you can keep building upon, you know, over a period of time. You wouldn't have to invest everything all at once into it just to play it. Yeah, definitely. I think the giant creatures that are picking up things are just lobbing on top of the people. It's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> Nate, while I'm making video game recommendations about what to do with fire, it sounds like you're using that giant ball of fire in the sky and doing stuff around that. Yes, I'm using the big nuclear reactor in the sky to help power my cubicle labs here. It's a bit of a long tail, not that important, and probably not entirely appropriate for this show. In short, I got 12 solar panels, and I'm testing to see if these panels, they are used panels, they're not brand new, are going to work well for me here. They're 235 watt panels each. My calculations, I'm because they are older, they are used, I'm calculating them as though they're not going to produce as much energy, which I think is wise. So my goal is by the end of the week to have a test completed of running the panels, doing a grid tie into my power system here to see if I can generate enough electricity off these panels as I expect and see if the investment is worth the payback on it. And if so, I will be buying more of these panels and hopefully I'll be able to completely have my cubicle labs energy independent, but that won't be independent, be interdependent, but where I'm making as much energy as I'm using out here so that I'm personally not going to be a strain on the electrical system for all the nonsense that I do. I don't know if you know this, Matt, Wendy, but I have lots of old computers and I like to play. I like to do things with my old stuff. And since I realize it doesn't really benefit anybody but me, I would like to be able to offset the costs of running these old things by supplying my own electricity. Also, since I do drive an EV that I plug in, I want to offset some of the costs there. I have noticed that my electric bills are quite a bit higher than at my previous house before I had an EV. About half of that is because of the EV. I'd like to offset some more of those costs make it more cost effective for me to drive around and do all the picking up, moving kids, getting groceries, stuff like that. It's just a way of reducing my expenses. Also nerding out with solar panels and electrical grid tie systems and so forth. So it's kind of like a culmination of all the different fun and being able to have some, I hate the term, but some synergy between all my hobbies and so forth in a way that costs me less, essentially. I'm really interested to see how this project goes. I know you've been slowly building onto this Since you've moved in this house, it's kind of one step at a time in order to have this overall goal of you being more self-sustaining in your power. 
a windmill was on that list before. Is it still on the list? Is it installed? Where are you at there? The windmill is put together. It does not produce the voltage that I was expecting. It's a 12 volt, not a 24 volt, not a big deal. It'll have to be on its own inverter, grid tie inverter. So I'm waiting to do that one for a few reasons. One is I got to get some permission before I can put a tower up on my house. So I got to make sure I'm okay there. There's some other little regulatory things I got to be sure of before I put that up. I'll get it and I'll get it put up. I got to go through a process there. And maybe I don't have to do that because it's basically, it's nothing more than like an antenna tower, actually less than. I just want to make sure everything's on the up and up there. As far as the solar panels go, they're soft wired in, they're not hard wired in. So there are no additional requirements that I needed to satisfy in order to be able to plug those in. I already have the smart meter from the electric company. So they're all set on their end for me to do this. Now it's your turn to toss in your two cents, you know, maybe three, on today's topics. Hit the discourse forum, drop us a line under this video, or on the contact form by visiting dlnextend.com contact. If you'd like to hang out with us on our preferred social media, see the links at the bottom of the show description. Find other great shows like Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, Linux Saloon, and more at tuxdigital.com. Show off your love for your favorite podcasts and shows by visiting the Tux Digital merch store. Grab yourself some awesome swag like the gamer-centric I Pause My Game to Be Here shirt. As always, thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another awesome episode of Linux Out Loud. Until then, keep the banter friendly, conversation somewhat on topic, and have fun doing it. 